Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, should you ever own a bond? We're going to talk about a billionaire's thoughts on the economy and probably some other stuff. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you. Our proclamation that sending dog photos into our show would get your questions featured, we're going to make that instantly true. Tyler <laughs> has been a listener of the show. We've, we've actually read Tyler's questions before. Tyler took us to heart immediately, sent in photos of a super cute dog, one that he's fostering that I think is up for adoption, and the other is his. We are going to repost Tyler's dog on the Check Your Balances Instagram so that's where you can go for your dog-related content now is the Check Your Balances personal finance podcast. But he also had some stuff that we can talk about from an investing perspective. So first of all, thank you to Tyler for writing in. We appreciate it. And uh, I think that we are going to continue to pound the table that if you send your dog photos in with your questions about personal finance, you are moving to the top of the line. That is first in line for us. We can't wait to cover more dog-related content. I think that's a fair policy, and I think that's for the benefit of everyone in the world, really. Yeah, that, that hurts no one. This is, this is only good things. This is a win-win-win situation. It's a win for us. It's a win for the folks that are writing into our show. That's check your balances at outlook.com is how you can get to us. And hopefully, it's a win for the consumers of other dog content, because that just puts a smile on my face. I'm, I'm here for it. At Check Your Balances for the dogs of Check Your Balances listeners. Yeah, we, we link all this stuff in the show notes. If you can't find it, um, you're, you're not trying very hard. So yeah, we, we're, we're going to absolutely put all the things you need to in the show notes to, to find this stuff. Okay, so let's talk about the actual finance question that Tyler sent in, which was really a video. And the video was a billionaire talking about investing. So this is Ron Barron. He's a super bull on Tesla, SpaceX. I think he has been for, for quite a while. And in kind of an offhand comment, he says, I've, I've never owned a, a bond. That's silly. Why would anybody own bonds? And I think when billionaires talk about money, they probably get more credit than they deserve, right? Like it's almost a throwaway comment in the video. But let's talk about why he would say that and and what's its relevance, right? Like if the billionaires are thinking differently than we do at a personal level, are we making a mistake and do we need to reframe how we look at this stuff? Yeah, let's talk about the context of that comment because I think that's important too. So he's talking about the totality of his investing career that started, I forget what decade, but I think it was the 70s. And he's talking about how the market has grown at a compound rate of like 7 8%. Or, and how uh, just the American economy has grown at a pretty substantial rate, decade after decade after decade. And in fact, it's accelerating on the tail end of the last 20 years or so. So the interviewer asks him, so with that in mind, you would never buy like a two or a five-year treasury? And he says, never, ever. 
the underlying sentiment that he's expressing is that he believes that equities will always grow over time more than you can return in a bond. And I think to a large extent, you and I probably agree with that sentiment. A hundred percent. That That is, yes. That if, if you want to grow your wealth, I believe stocks are the right answer, right? That just flat out. I don't, I don't need to even put bumper guards on that. If you are looking to grow your purchasing power over a meaningful amount of time, that's the answer. Yeah. Now, now the caveat here is he cited basically a 50-year period. If you have 50 years, I am almost 0% concerned about the loss of purchasing power in any dollar I've invested in the stock market. That is a very long period of time to be invested and a very long holding period. That's number one. The other thing that you led with is we are talking about a billionaire here who has no need to worry about cash in his life period i would assume i don't i don't know him personally but well that's what he said and honestly i found this mo- the most irritating thing and again we're going to post this interview so if you want it's like a 3 minute clip so if you want to go see the the exact clip we're talking about i don't think that we're allowed to replay cnbc on our show i i, I don't know the rules around that well enough to to feel confident just like putting that on our air and then and then replaying it I think that's probably across the line on on a few things, but we're going to put the clip in the show notes so that you can hear it. But yeah, he basically says, I I have no interest in owning a bond. And by the way, I don't hold a lot of cash too. And so he kind of caveats it by basically just saying he's a bullish guy, right? And I think that's what he's trying to say. I'm, I'm a bullish guy. I believe in the earning power of our economy. We agree with that. Right. To say you don't have a lot of cash... I think downplays the importance of cash. And and the, the only question that I would have followed that with is if you're going to give that as broad-based advice, next month when you need groceries or whatever it is as a billionaire you spend your money on, right? In any amount, where does it come from? Well, That's it. That's the only uh, question. Also, what is not a lot of cash for billionaire <laughs> investor Ron Barron? Like maybe it's half a million True. dollars of cash. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of cash. He's got like a million bucks sitting around. Yeah. And for him, maybe that's like a less than 1% portion of his portfolio. He's like, yeah, whatever. I could burn this money and I'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, it's, and- it's rounding error cash. And and to the rest of us, it's like some super meaningful amount. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think about is what is a bond? Like a bond is something that's kicking off a routine amount of interest. He has, he manages a fund which for him is probably serving as a bond in his life too, which I think is also interesting when you look at financial planning is you can own a bond like security that is truly a bond, but there are other things in your life that act like a bond as well. And I think of like pensions can be a bond for people and replace that portion of someone's asset allocation, even though it's not specifically a bond that you're holding in your portfolio. I think we made the analogy at one point. I don't know if this is on the show or not, but I think this is on like a Slack channel at one point was that your job is just a junk bond. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think is a funny way to think about it. It's like, yeah, it's high income and it's a little risky. Ca- the callable bet, at any time. Yeah. The, the, the bet is on you and I'm not sure if I'd, t- I'd make the bet. Right. Like that's, that's basically what we're saying when we look at a bond is like, yeah, the, what, what are the risks? Where is your cash flow coming from is the key question. That's the only reason we care about bonds in in most cases is that we're trying to protect and 
make predictable where the cash flow comes from. That that's the key. Yeah, like I don't think bonds are going to out-earn stocks. That's not why I've ever put them into a client portfolio. It's just a function of trying to make sure that money's there for you on the day that you need it. Yeah, 100%. So when you look at an interview like this and you hear someone who's very well respected say I would never own a bond, like period. Definitively say that. Context is key and if I had 50 years, I would own 0% bonds as well. Uh, there's a, a chart that you cite a lot, Ross, that I wish I had off the top of my head, but it's a rolling period of like one year, five years, 10 years, 20, 30. And I think over a 30-year period, the stock market has never lost money. Is that over right? Over a 20-year period, it's never lost money. Period. I show that chart to people all the time, especially when they are are newer to investing or or need a reminder about kind of what the what the timing does. And that comes out of the JP Morgan guide to the markets deck. I feel a little bad sometimes because we don't use any of JP Morgan's funds in our portfolios, but I've been using this particular slide deck for probably the last eight or nine years, at least. I feel like it's been around for, for quite a while. Yeah. It must've been introduced even back when I was at like Morgan Stanley. So we're talking about 2013, 2014, something like that. And this deck has been good since then. So ten, 10 years of the JP Morgan deck and my apologies to them that I'm not currently using any of their stuff. But it's a really good chart because it basically says in a single year, you could have really wild investing outcomes. The stock market has made almost 50%. It's lost almost 50%, right? So in, in a one year, if all you're measuring is a single year period, your outcomes are really, really wild. By the time you get to a rolling five-year period, so any rolling five-year period in history, we've had S&P 500 returns of up to 28%. That's per year. So five years, 28% per year. So super boom markets. And the worst example, this is going back to 1950, is 3% losses. So there are five-year windows where you have lost money in stocks, not many of them. Right. So most five year periods are positive and it skews very heavily to the positive numbers. Over a 10 year period, we've had one example, I believe, since the 50s of a decade that did not have positive returns. And that's the early 2000s to 2009. Right. So like, I think it's 99 to, to 2009 is that window. Not massive losses, basically a, a dead decade where, where money did not grow in that time window, but most 10-year rolling periods have been very meaningfully in positive returns. And then by 20 years, never have we had a 20 rolling year period of losses. 6% annualized growth is the worst we've ever done. And it's been as good as 17%. Now, reading that chart on our air, that's a very painful way to explain this, but hopefully it makes sense, right? If you put the time on your side, the time will do the heavy lifting if you're a stock investor. But as you start to shorten that down, that how much time do I have? That's why the bonds become important is that you no longer have 20 years to recover. If you're looking to retire next year, you're now in that one year rolling window where you could have really erratic returns. We have to start taking some of that out in terms of how we prepare for that. And so, yeah, there's a couple different ways to do it, but that's really the key. And so, it's not that this guy's trying to give personal finance advice and saying nobody should own a bond, but when you're going to be that broad brush with it, that's what people are going to hear is this smart guy, this very wealthy, smart guy said the thing that my advisor told me or the thing that conventional finance told me is dumb. 
why why would I do that? And and so that yeah, it's challenging when people give it kind of that much weight. Yeah, and that's the problem, honestly, with anything on mass media. Like any advisor on TV who's making comments, I think of a lot of the popular advisor call-in shows or any investor making claims about something or another. You have to think about the context and the motivation. And something that looks like a general claim that applies to everyone is never that simple. There's always touches of gray in between, depending on someone's personal situation. Yeah, Dan. So there were a couple other things in this that I, I, you know, as I've just been looking at the the market to start the year, this is kind of unrelated to the discussion we're having, but Dan, do you realize how many IPOs happened in 2021? 2021? Yeah. I'm, sp- I'm springing this on you. You're completely unprepared for the question, but... A billion? I don't know. Do you want me to take a real guess? So so I'll, I'll give you a context number so that you've sure. got a couple reference points. So... 2018, it was 255. 2019, 232 IPOs. 2020, 480 IPOs. So we saw an uptick. Yeah. What do you think 2021 was? Going 950. You're really close. 1,035. Oh, wow. That's solid. Just an incredible number of IPOs in 2021, followed by a sharp decline in 22, 23, because the easy money was, was kind of being sucked out of the system, but what an acceleration. And I think that's just a lot of companies either pulling forward or that had pushed back. Right. And then they, they saw the frothiness of the market during COVID and and said, we're going to, we're going to launch in that time. But that's an unbelievable number to me. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if that counts SPACs too. That's an interesting question. I, I bet it does. Honestly. Yeah, I can, I can look because at them. Because a SPAC has to IPO too, right? Not really. Well, I, I guess it does. Yeah, it's just that they list it as kind of the empty shell and then they merge it. So I, I don't right. know if it still counts as an IPO. That's a good question. My right. inclination is that it is in the spirit of an IPO, even though it is itself like nothing at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you're right. It has to be underwritten. It has to start trading. It has to get listed. So I, I don't know if that... That counts the same, but anyway. My God, when was the last time we said the word SPAC on this podcast? Has it been two years? I bet probably. It yeah, because because it, it was an incredible hype cycle, and then they went away immediately because they all got crushed. God, what a strange phenomenon that was! It, yeah. it sounds like such a distant past, but it, it's not. Like this was no. a very recent reality for us, and like that word hasn't entered a single conversation of mine since the time we talked about it. Well, I think there's ETFs that even cover the SPAC portfolios. I'm doing this in real time. SPCX is a SPAC and two-year return number. It's lost 9.19. I got to assume that's annualized. And it's negative since inception. So not great. Yeah, I was just trying to look up what the most successful SPAC companies were. And I'm having... Yeah, this, this, this is old data. This is as of September 30, and the year-to-date number, it was down 5%, down 4.8 as, as of September 30. Interesting. This, this is like the kind of rabbit hole that Dan and I would go down personally and then never come out of. Because now I start looking at like what's actually in this thing. I want to see the, oh my gosh, I've never heard of any of these companies. Well, that's all right. This isn't apparently where I want to do my most fervent hunting if if this portfolio is just full of nothing that goes up. 
I think it's it's probably also a factor of valuations on when they kind of began their lifetime. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean that that was it was it was a wild time, and they were IPOing that fast because of valuations. People were willing to. It was kind of this everything's going up world, and the money was being silly. It was disconnected from actual valuations. Crazy. I was looking up SPACs, and I see like mundane companies that I engage with sometimes. I Black Rifle Coffee Company is something I see on the shelves and I've had before. And apparently that merged with the SPAC back in a couple of years back. Like how invest, uh, and I, I probably sound stupid because there's certainly been coffee companies that have done great, but like what kind of valuation would that have had? Yeah. So was, was that the one that was on Shark Tank? I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, and I'm, I'm a super dork about coffee if this is the company I think, and I don't, I don't mean any, any slander towards uh, th- this company, they were basically a veteran-owned coffee company, but they were just licensing somebody else's roasting process. I don't think they were even roasting their own beans. They were, they were just really a, a branding arm where they're repackaging a coffee bean, or maybe it's a proprietary blend that they've kind of asked for um, and, and developed, but it's, it's really more just the marketing of it, which is not wrong there's plenty of people that do that but i i don't remember that being a particularly compelling pitch it wasn't like they were doing something special in coffee it was just a, a good marketing operation i see that a lot in the beer space locally i've seen it where people come in and they're basically a marketing company they get someone to brew their beer and they slap a label on it and just go try to sell it I always look down a little bit on them for some reason. I just feel like they're not they're not doing the thing. But it doesn't mean it can't be effective. There are a lot of great brands that don't create the product or the process on their own. It's hard to tell. It, it gets down to the question of like, where's the value, right? Is the value in finding a customer? Is the value in the creation of a thing? And I could argue that beer is a commodity. I could offer that car- coffee is a commodity. What are you going to do different? in beer or coffee that hasn't been done yet. Yeah. Right. But the artisans in that world probably gag at the idea of selling a product they didn't actually create and they didn't make with their hands that that's the value. That's that is the love and care being imposed on the process is the making of the thing or the roasting of the bean. But at the end of the day, a sale is a sale. An economist would probably say it's more efficient for the artisans to make the thing and for a salesperson to go and sell it. Then they're not oftentimes the same person. Well, yeah, but that was what 2020 really, I think with all of the supply chain disruption, it finally threw a wrench in that theory, which is that we should consolidate manufacturing into a single point of the most efficient producer of anything should be the only one making it. Right. Like if, if you believe in pure efficiency, we should have one guy that makes everything or one, one girl that makes every individual product with the highest level of scale because they can get the cost down to the lowest level possible, which gives us the greatest economic benefit as a like society. But number one, it's monopoly pricing power. So that's bad. So we don't necessarily want that. We still need the competition to keep prices down. And then number two, we figured out that even minor disruptions in our ability to get stuff all across the globe can create absolute havoc and and that we're not as kind of well-oiled in all of those senses as we might've thought we were. 
Yeah, going back to my brewery days, we were actively expanding during that period and buying new tanks. And the journey of our tanks from overseas to Maryland was a a wild one. We'd get letters of like, yeah, the uh, the ship is at port. It's probably going to be there for three more weeks. And then they'd say, all right, ship left. Then we'd get something days later that said, the ship left, but your stuff wasn't on the ship. It's going to have to wait for the next one. And it it was wild. So you're right. I mean, we definitely need to address single points of failure in that system too. Well, kind of a random wandering show. I, I apologize if anybody's listening to us talk about this going, what in the hell are these guys doing this week? But we appreciate Tyler writing in with his dog photos. Uh, we're going to repost those. I think we will probably do a bit more of a traditional show next week. We've got some fun ideas with the tax code that we're going to unpack. Hope and our people love the tax code. They do. Uh, yeah, I I kind of pitched that tongue in cheek because in, in a way I'm kind of like, yeah, nobody's going to like that. But those seem to be some of our most popular episodes. Just tune in next week. We are going to talk about how we would change the tax code if you gave us the magic pen to do it. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We will catch you all next week on another episode.